recently we did a production of Mr. Burns, a post-apocalyptic play, and that has the characters from The Simpsons in it. Lisa had a, a wig made out of caution tape, and Bart's crown shape um, was a, a Sugar Pops cereal box, and Homer's head was actually a, a volleyball that I kind of took apart. Hello, and welcome to Start Talking, an art gallery of Windsor podcast, where we talk about everything and anything arts-related in the Windsor-Essex community. I'm Michaela, and I'm the Digital Initiatives Coordinator at the Art Gallery of Windsor. And hi, I'm Abby Lee, and I am the Audience Engagement Coordinator, uh, also at the Art Gallery of Windsor. Michaela is flying solo in today's podcast, which is featuring the lovely and talented Esther Van Eek. So I'm going to pass it along to Michaela and let her take it away. My name is Michaela Muldoon, and I'm the Digital Initiatives Coordinator at the Art Gallery of Windsor. I'm here today with Esther Van Eek from the University of Windsor's Drama Department, and she wears many hats. Um, no pun intended there, because she is also a hat maker as one of her many uh, practices. So to start off, welcome Esther. Thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. Our pleasure. So can you please give us a brief description of what it is that you do and what your day-to-day looks like? Sure. Um, I'm currently an associate professor at the University of Windsor, where I teach drawing, costume design, stage makeup, and intro to the theater um, in the drama department. And I also design costumes both at the university and professionally. And uh, most of my days are full of class prep and teaching and grading and advising students. And then in and around there, if I'm currently working on a show, that stuff happens to the drawing and painting and research and all of that sort of thing. And yeah, for the last, like like most of the world, for the last uh, nine months, all of that stuff has been happening online. Okay, yes, that was going to be one of our questions for you. How has the pandemic affected your practice and your career? Typically, early in the new year, I'm sending out resumes and and applying at various theaters here and in the U.S. um, for design gigs for the summer, because usually it's uh, teaching is too all-encompassing to do a whole lot of design where there's a residency involved, and that's typically the case. Um, with costume design. So my costume designing usually happens in the spring and summer months. So I had sent out a bunch of letters and and been communicating with a number of theaters. And uh, then the pandemic happened. So I didn't move anywhere last summer and I didn't design any shows last summer, except I was working on the one for university players, A Midsummer Night's Dream. And that one initially shifted from the first slot of the season to the second semester, and then it shifted to not happening at all. I'm very sorry to hear that. I bet you have a lot of plans in the pipes, though, for when things finally open back up again. Just to reach out to theaters again and see who survived this whole thing, because some of them have actually closed down permanently Mm. um, because of this situation. You know, they rely on on ticket sales and so on. And if they don't have a season, they don't have ticket sales. And so we'll see. We'll see how many survive and how that changes the landscape. Well, you do have um, a lot of different 
careers or uh, practices, that is, so to speak. So you do have um, a lot that you can do. You're um, a costume and set and props designer, you're a printmaker, you're a painter, you're a milliner, which, uh, as I mentioned earlier, is the hat design for, for anyone who doesn't know the design of women's hats. And you're an illustrator and a mask maker as well. So that's, that's quite a lot. Did you start out in your career knowing that you wanted to do all of these things, or did you kind of just gradually accumulate them piece by piece into your career? Much more of the, the second. Really, all of the things that you, you listed there are just mediums for expression. At least that's how I see them. So I've been sketching as long as I can remember. And it's kind of my nature. It's how I respond to things, how I remember things or understand and process things. Like I have a pencil in my hand right now and a pad of paper right by my hand. So I will scribble things and, and stuff as we speak um, because that's just what I do. So I, I knew I was an artist. I probably wouldn't have applied that term to myself, but I knew I was more comfortable expressing myself visually than in words already at a pretty young age. And it took me lots of years to figure out how to turn that into a, a vocation. I've drawn ever since I can remember and basically didn't take any formal training until I went to university. So I, I wasn't really aware of the fact that drawing things could actually turn into a career of some sort. So I took a pretty meandering path, went to university and took an art class or two and really, really loved them, loved them a lot more than what I thought my major was. So I ended up transferring my major to fine art and did a BFA, that's a Bachelor of Fine Art degree in uh, visual art with a focus in printmaking. So anyway, that's uh, my meandering path through fine art. After I finished my degree, was kind of like, what do I do now? What do you do with a fine art degree? So I decided moving from Michigan to Toronto seemed like a good idea because Toronto had a lot of stuff going on in the fashion industry. And I kind of put my interests in drawing and illustrating together with my interest in construction and sewing and fabrics and color and all of that stuff. And I came up with fashion. So, but how to get there. When I first moved to Toronto, I did get work illustrating fashion for advertisements. Gradually kind of worked my way in until I got a spot um, at a company that did a number of different lines, did a lot of private label stuff as well. Like if you're familiar with Benetton, the Italian company, we produced a, a baby line of Benetton. So for a number of years, I was designing kids wear and really enjoyed that. Kind of got into theater by accident. I started hanging out with an actor who uh, eventually became my husband. So I was seeing a lot of theater and discussing a lot of theater with him and helping him learn his lines and so on. So I was reading plays and always when I read them, I'm picturing the environment and picturing the, the people that populate the plays. So it just sort of naturally morphed into starting to design um, for the theater. And with another move back to the U.S., I started designing costumes full-time and got out of the, the fashion design end of things. So you draw on uh, stage directions and, and lines and whatnot as well to create the costumes. Yeah, there's a couple of ways. Like you say, um, stage directions give you a lot of information. Well, depending on the playwright, somebody like Shaw gives you tons of information in those stage directions. There are other playwrights who give you next to nothing. So you also rely on the dialogue. So what one character says to or about another character 
or how that person presents themselves in their dialogue. You're looking for any kind of clues that you can get in those ways. So really, really, you have to get to know your script really well before starting to sketch anything. Every show has a different set of demands. So if you haven't done millinery before and then you're hired to design a show that has a lot of hats and the theater doesn't own the appropriate hats or they're a type of hat that you have to build, then you better learn how to do millinery and so on. And I've done, I've done some millinery just as a milliner for a show, but primarily it comes when I think a character needs a certain kind of hat, the tilt hat. It shows up in quite a number of different periods. So you can build one and then dress it for the show that you're working and then undress it and put some other trimming on it and stuff. And it can be a completely other period and other character. Regency bonnets, think Jane Austen and Emma, that kind of period. And I have built some, some men's hats as well, but uh, not as many of them. They change less than women's hats do, you know, in terms of style and they're more available. So you can make a forties hat work for 20s or you know things like that in a way that you can't really get away with for women so this was basically i was designing costumes you know kind of accidentally got into designing costumes or or sort of uh through a strange set of circumstances rather than any real intention but then after doing it for a number of years i really wanted to pursue it and get more formal training so i decided to go to grad school and it just took a, a few years to actually make that happen because by then I had a husband and two kids and a full-time job and stuff like that. So how do you find that uh, fashion design compares to costume design? Um, the biggest difference, well, there are two really big differences. One is kind of the end user or, or the buyer, if you will. And the other one is the, the kind of quantity. So in fashion baby outfits, the buyer would be a store or a label, a brand, not a specific baby or a specific family or anything like that. So you're really thinking more appeal, broad appeal or appeal to that certain market. And with Beatrix Potter, they were a little bit pricier than, than some of the other lines we had. So it could put a lot of embroidery on them and a lot of trimming and stuff like that. But it's really that that kind of mass appeal rather than specific character choices, if you will. And they're also produced in quantity. So a, a baby sleeper might be produced 3000 in the e-crew color and 3000 in the pink. And, you know, they're sewn up and, and they'll go all over the place and end up on all kinds of different babies. And once in a while I saw a baby like in a mall or something like that, in a stroller. And I, hey, that's my, that's my outfit on that baby. I did that. But usually not much of a connection to that uh, end user, if you will. Whereas in theater, it's all about the specifics and it's all about individual characters. So even if you have, uh, like in Midsummer Night's Dream, where you have a group of fairies, you can treat those fairies as individuals and learn something about them from the script and you know which fairy is the shyest one and and which one is the most outspoken and which one is the one that's most likely to get into trouble and that kind of thing so it's that specificity that's unique to to theater and the end user 
you're building a story for a particular audience, yes, but with this cast in mind, with this director, you're in dialogue with the other creatives on the team. And once you produce that show, it runs for a weekend or two, usually not a lot more than that, and then it disappears, it's gone. And even if you do another Midsummer Night's Dream, you're still starting with reading the script and you start all over again as though it's a clean slate. That makes sense. Could it also be reasonable to compare, like say, what are the similarities and differences then between costume design and then also set design and prop design for a production? Have you ever done all three on one production or have, have they mostly remained separate? Let's see. Skepem by Moliere. With this one, I was assistant set designer and costume designer, props, millinery, wigs, makeup. There was a small team on this one on a very small budget. That's, I think, the magic of theater because the budgets are almost always too small for what you want to do or what the director wants. It's making things with next to nothing and, and trying to make them look like they're rich and, and luxe and beautiful and everything. With this show, it was a combination of pulling existing costumes and then changing them so that they fit the period a little bit better, making these knickers, if you will, <laughs> um, out of existing pants and stuff like that and hiding the fact that there's a zipper in them and, you know, just different things like that. Taking a man's dress shoe and, and putting a big buckle on the front of it and a, a tongue turns that into a more period appropriate shoe and, and all kinds of stuff like that. That's, that's the fun stuff, really finding solutions to those kinds of um, challenges. The problem solving aspect of your practice. Very much so. Another thing I do is makeup. So I teach stage makeup, but I've also done some stage makeup as a, as a gig artist. And this show, Spirit of America, was basically the history of the United States through the various wars that it had engaged in. So you had these kind of scenes from the various wars and all these, they were not actors, they were soldiers who were cast in the show. And most of them had never had makeup on and many of them were unimpressed with the idea of having to have makeup on. But when you have theatrical lighting or in, the, in this case, arena lighting, because these, these were huge arenas where the show happened, if you hit a face with lighting like that, you lose all kinds of, all, all the dimension in the face and it ends up looking like a, a kind of a floating moon. So in order to keep the features, you have to go back in and, and put the sculpting of the face back in with makeup. So that was probably the strangest uh, makeup gig I ever did. It sounds like a lot of fun though. It was, it was. Uh, sometimes two shows a day and then move to the next town and or city and do it again in a different arena. It was interesting. Right, the touring aspect of it all. Yeah, so I wouldn't say I got to know anything about the cities that we were in because it was pretty much always, you know, down in the bowels of the arena in whatever room they gave us as a makeup room. So then when you're working in the United States versus when you're working in Canada, do you find that there's a big difference you know, between the way things go? To some degree. There are a lot of things that are quite similar in terms of the process with, you know, starting with getting hired onto a show and then working with the, the rest of the creative team and the director and so on. And that way of working is quite similar. I think what's 
a bit different um, is how things are funded. And there are a few things that don't really play well in Canada. Like I was really used to something called 10 of 12s, 10 out of 12s. And those are rehearsals uh, so-called because you're working 10 out of 12 hours. It's basically when you're getting close to opening night and it's all hands on deck and you're in the theater for hours and hours and hours. You bring your food with you. Sometimes you're pulling all-nighters and just teching the show and trying to get everything ready because opening night is going to happen. So those, those weekends could be brutal. And when I moved back to Canada and started designing here again, the first time I asked, when are, when are 10 of 12s? They were like, what is that? Like, what are you talking about? You know, and why, why would we do that? Go without sleep. So they just tend to have a slightly kinder approach to that process because that's a reality here. Um, that's another one of the, the big differences really is the number of theaters, just sheer number. And if you've ever trotted around in, even in Michigan, you know that some of the little tiniest towns have a theater, a theater company with a theater building and, you know, a tradition of producing shows. And that is not really the case here. You tend to have your theater clusters in the larger city centers. So there are a lot more jobs too to be had stateside. Since moving to Windsor, the company that I've worked for most often is in Massachusetts. Uh, it's called Shakespeare and Company, and I love working there. It's wonderful, and it, it means moving to Massachusetts for seven or eight weeks of my summer, but they have very high production values, and it's a wonderful company to work for and stuff, so I really, I really enjoy that, and I'm, I'm lucky. I have dual citizenship, so my mother was American. My father's Dutch, but a Canadian citizen, so I am legally allowed to work on both sides of the border, just kind of allows a little bit more freedom when the border is not closed. So that was a strange makeup gig. Usually whatever project I'm currently working on, my, my brain is so into it, I can hardly remember other shows, but it's, it's usually my favorite one. The first time I designed Midsummer Night's Dream, this person was the, the queen of the Amazons who loses in a battle and therefore has to marry the Duke. She's kind of spoils of war. So that's Hippolyta. And there are two pairs of young lovers who, in typical Shakespeare fashion, they're in love with the wrong person until they run around the forest and, you know, all kinds of stuff happens. And then they end up with the right people. And then there's a group of uh, tradespeople who put on a show for the wedding. And one of the characters is called The Wall. Anyway, really fun. And it's the first time I had to build an ass's head. I didn't even know really what an ass looked like. So that was part of my research for this show. So that was a really fun challenge. That show also had too small a budget. So the, the director said, make sure you spend the money on the court people. I want them looking very royal, very regal. He thought that the, the fairies could basically be in nude body stockings to save money that way. And there were 14 fairies in this production. And I did not like that idea that the fairies would just be in nude body stockings. Shakespeare put all this energy into writing these amazing scenes with these fairies. I think they should look really amazing. So I found this watered silk. It looked like watercolor on fabric. And of course I could not afford it. 
So long story short, I ended up asking uh, for wedding dress donations across campus and tons of people offered their, their wedding dresses and wedding dresses have yards and yards and yards of fabric. So took apart a bunch of wedding dresses and then uh, with some fiber reactive dye and spritz bottles and salt and other things, ended up painting, hand painting 30 meters of fabric that turned into the 14 fairy costumes. And they, they ended up looking gorgeous. Not That's super impressive and creative. Once again, that problem solving coming into play. If you enjoy problem solving, then I think uh, there's, there's a designer in there somewhere because that's really what you do. Recently, we did a production of Mr. Burns, a post-apocalyptic play, and that has the characters from The Simpsons in it. And over the course of three acts, this group of people from act one start producing old Simpsons episodes. The people who are playing Lisa and Bart and so on, so their hats or their wigs were made out of kind of found materials. Like Lisa had a a wig made out of caution tape and Bart's crown shape um, was a a Sugar Pops cereal box. And Homer's head was actually a, a volleyball that I kind of took apart. So it was still yellow and round. So that was that was really fun. It was a huge challenge. It took a lot, a lot of time. But I had not worked a whole lot with thermoplastic before. Um, and that's a material that reacts to heat. Um, so it's really, really durable. But you work with it either by heating it up in hot water or hitting it with a heat gun. Uh, so lots of burnt fingertips, but works really, really well. That's cool. You have to be super, not just creative, but... Um almost kind of a MacGyver to be a a costume designer, it seems. It helps. It really helps. It helps if you really like problem solving, like we said, but also learning about new materials and trying things. And I think not, not hearing, no, you can't do that. It's, it's how can I do this? It's not, can I do it? Like one of my favorite stores in Windsor is the Princess Auto. Typically when, when you walk in there, if you don't look like a mechanic or that kind of person, they will get to you really quickly and say, can I help you? What are you looking for? And I usually just say, I'll, I'll know it when I see it. Because if I tell them I'm looking for a, something that does this or this or this, they'll, they'll almost invariably tell me, oh, we don't have that here. It's like, yeah, yeah, you do. I will find it. <laughs> so like, like the donkey head was built on a, the interior of a welding helmet um, so that it would sit on the actor's head quite comfortably, but he could move around without any fear of that thing going flying. Right. Always the practical considerations too, in addition to the way it looks. Yes. Yeah. If something's going to go wrong, you know, if it could, it will. So you have to kind of plan for, for all of that. Murphy's law. Yep. Um, speaking of problem solving though, that's another thing that I wanted to address in terms of, I'm sure like a lot of people who want to pursue a career in the, a career in the arts want to, um, well, they receive pushback from other people who don't want them to do that, you know, parents or friends, people who will try to, with good intentions, of course, um, edge them towards something that's uh, safer, so to speak. Can you speak to that? Like if you have any advice for artists who are just getting started or designers who are just getting started in solving the problem of pursuing the career that they want and that they're talented at and have a passion for, 
in the face of others telling them, well, you can't or you can, but you shouldn't because this, this, and this. I think we hear that a lot lately. And it comes out of a place of love, I think, for the most part. Parents saying to their, their kids, you need to choose a path that will give you a life, right? That will, that will help you pay your rent and, and put food on your table and so on. Many parents feel the arts is not the direction to go in. And you see that even, even as young as like middle school, there's that emphasis on STEM rather than STEAM. There's some validity to that. You're not gonna have a retirement savings plan as a gig artist. It doesn't exist. So if you're the kind of person that really, really needs to know exactly where your next paycheck is coming from and stuff, if you cannot handle living with the kind of uncertainty, um, it's probably not a good idea for you. And also if, if you're motivated by getting famous or getting rich, those are, those are things that you should probably find another way to get those things because it's not going to happen in the arts. If it does, it's kind of by accident. So it really only makes sense to get into the arts if there's this something inside you that says it's the, it's the thing that matters to you. It matters more than anything else. You feel this passionate drive and, and you look for a way of expressing that. And if you have that thing inside you, it probably will not shut up. So you need to find an outlet for that, that passion. Earlier, we talked about millinery and set design and, and printmaking and all of those things. Those are just the media that you can use for expression. And they matter much less than if that drive is there, if that passion is there, like if you're not drawing or if you're not painting, if you're not expressing yourself in some way, it's almost as though someone has their hand over your mouth, like that kind of feeling that you, you just need to do it. So to young people who are maybe a little bit scared, but really feel like that's the direction they, they really want to explore, if you really love it, if you love art, if you love design, if you love theater, then go see art and design and theater. Just immerse yourself in as much as you can possibly get. And that's good theater, good design, bad design, and all of the above, everything in between, because it starts really helping you find your own voice when you really, really get into it. So I would say, see what you love, see what you hate, see what makes you intensely uncomfortable, and then start paying attention to those responses and try to understand them. Why do you respond to something positively? Why do you respond to something else? Like it makes your skin crawl. What is that visceral response about? Another thing I would say is, is make use of the resources in the community. For example, in Windsor, the Art Gallery of Windsor. What a gem. You know, a city of this size with this amazing art gallery. So make use of that. And through the art gallery, but also through other venues around town, there are classes and workshops and volunteer opportunities like the Windsor Film Festival. You know, if you're really into film, volunteer and see as much of it as you can, um, but volunteer and get involved in that organization so you start getting connected up with the people who are doing film in this area and stay curious because artists are nothing if not curious beings. 
we want to know about all kinds of stuff and we want to know about experiences and and all of that so embrace that curiosity and then follow your heart thank you that's excellent advice and it can be applied across not just the arts but um anything really expose yourself is is a really important piece of advice yeah expose yourself to things that you like and things that you don't like so you get a better feel for your voice any in any field that's definitely something that i think can apply pretty much across the board Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps even in STEM, without the A, STEAM. For anyone who doesn't know, for anyone who's tuning in, STEM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Mathematics, and then STEAM includes the A for Arts in that. I think that kind of um, is a perfect segue into one of the questions that we have here for you about your, your work on learning, rediscovering the creative self. Can you tell us a bit more about the messages that you hope to deliver in sure. that work? Well, I've been teaching drawing for for several years at the point that I did that project on learning rediscovering the creative self I'd noticed over the course of teaching drawing for these several years that there was something in common with almost all of the students and that was the obstacles that were there that stood in the way of them um, and their creativity and and for many of them it was a fear of failure so you know, would they preferred not to draw rather than to draw badly or a perceived lack of talent? Like they would say, I, I can't draw a figure. I can't draw a stick person. I can't draw a straight line. And I would just tell them, well, good. We're not going to draw any of those things in this class. So come on in, you know, sit down. There's that self-doubt. And I have that too. I mean, let's be real. A blank piece of paper is intimidating to almost anybody, but you have to just kind of set that aside. And something you notice is this kind of set of um, symbol systems, I call them. And that can have a lot to do with where a student stopped learning about drawing and where a student stopped drawing regularly. So you would see some of them would draw a nose as a triangle. And if you really look at a nose, it doesn't look like that. That typically would tell me that somewhere in middle school or or thereabouts, uh, they stop drawing with any regularity or whatever. They're relying on their brain to tell them what an eye is and what a nose is and what lips look like rather than actually looking. So I basically evolved um, a way of teaching drawing that had everything to do with with seeing and a lot less to do with any kind of symbol system or sort of generic solution to a drawing problem. That's what I really wanted them to hear. All of us are creative beings. We're born creative. So it's not some of us are artists and some of us are not. We're all born creative. And that drawing is is a skill set like so many other things are skill sets. And the more you practice, the better you get. So you may, you may not be Michelangelo. You may never get there, but you can definitely go from where you are right now and through practice, get a whole lot better. I think to the point where like these students would, after six weeks, I'd hang that, that first self-portrait up and then have them hang their, their second self-portrait up right beside it. And they would shock themselves. Like, I can't believe I did that. And it's like, yeah, you know, you're the one who said you couldn't draw a straight line and look at you now. <laughs> it's um yeah practice 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 and then trust the process and and that's so much of what what art is too right You're exactly scared. it's it's much more hard work than it is natural talent yeah so you decided to go to 
grad school and I know like just like people might have doubts about their their own natural creativity or their own talents or whether or not they should pursue an artistic career they also might have doubts about whether they want to pursue grad school so can you tell us a bit about how you made that decision and like if you can tell us if there's any way that people should be able to listen to themselves to know if that's truly the right route for them or not grad school was a really positive experience for me for sure But that said, I did not follow any advisor's path. I went to grad school in my 40s, which, you know, your financial advisor would tell you that's absolutely insane to to quit a full-time job and go back to school with two kids in tow, move across the country. It was nuts. I went to grad school in Washington in D.C., and that's a fairly expensive place to live. So there were all kinds of reasons why it was a really bad idea, but I knew in my heart that I really wanted to push myself and see how far I could take this costume design thing. I was doing it, but I was kind of doing it in a pretty small pond. So my feeling was like, well, of course I can look good if there's no competition around me, but am I any good at this? I don't know. Let's, let's go find out. So for me, that's what uh, grad school was about. It was, you know, kind of trying to find how far, I could push myself. And it also opens the door to certain kinds of jobs too. That was sort of a, um, it wasn't my intention when I went to grad school. It wasn't my intention to end up teaching. But that said, it's kind of a good hybrid. I get to do what I do and then I get to talk about it with students. So it's it's a really nice uh, symbiosis there. As far as when I have my students asking me about should I go to grad school or not, or should I go to grad school immediately after my undergraduate degree. There's no one size fits all. It's different for everybody, but some things hold true. And that is that there is value in education, whether that's in workshops or, you know, casual getting together with another artist and and learning a new technique or, or whatever. There's huge value in that. And then I think, especially at the age of like 18, 19, 20, in that age range, Young people are really, really, really finding their own voice. They're figuring out who they are. They're, they're learning about themselves in a way that I don't think any other age group has so much that they deal with, so much change and all of that. So depending on where they are in that journey, if there's still more questions than there are answers, then I think maybe the right thing to do is not grad school right away, but go out there, get a job, in the field that you're interested in. And if, you know, in my case, go and get a job in the theater and work really hard and immerse yourself in it and see if you still love it when you've encountered the roadblocks and the the hard parts about it. If you're still passionate about it, then think about grad school. So it's a matter of, of timing, like developing that voice. It's also a matter of life experience, right? An artist is often speaking out of their life experience. And if you haven't lived very much yet, it can be really difficult having something to say in your art. So sometimes the thing to do is just really spend, spend a few years in the field and and learning stuff and then go to grad school. But there are people too who, who feel like once they've got the momentum through that first four years, they want to just keep it going. And there's value in that too. Yeah. Oh, no. And definitely it's, it's not like you can give a one size fits all answer to that question anyway. 
I do think that was some very solid advice, right? Make sure, like, if you have more questions than than answers, it, it might be good to, to try to get some more life experience in before you get more schooling in. So that definitely makes sense. But um, before I let you go, if we could get just um, a little bit more local, we wanted to know in your time uh, teaching at the University of Windsor and just working with the University of Windsor in general, um, have you seen a lot of changes within the university's arts community? If so, what has that been? And also, have you seen kind of like a similar pattern going on in the Windsor community in general, where there's changes in the arts community? Things change very slowly at a university. That's one thing. They kind of move the pace of a glacier. But that said, uh, just in the last few years, many of the arts departments were consolidated into that downtown space, the old armory and surrounding area. And the way they redesigned and reconfigured those spaces was to really encourage the musicians and the visual artists and, and so on to cross paths. And there's some kind of common spaces. So these artists that practice in different mediums are encountering each other and, and sort of cross-pollinating, if you will, because it's really essentially the same language we speak, right? It's just a different, a different kind of output. So that was a huge change. And at one point, the theater department was part of that conversation, but we already had two theater spaces on the main campus, and it didn't look like we would be able to, to replicate that downtown. So for that and a number of other reasons, like our production spaces are also um, on the main campus and that kind of thing. So it just seemed more practical for us to stay put. So that's, that's quite a, a big change. But in terms of what's going on in the community, I've been seeing in the last few years, the arts organizations in Windsor gaining more visibility. And some of that's through kind of consolidating the efforts. So the, the newsletters that go out about all the art openings and the theater openings and exhibitions that are happening and even, even calls for submissions and stuff like that, that activity is picked up. So more people are more aware of more of what's going on. Recently, I think within the last year or so, the, the theater companies in Windsor decided to bring themselves under one organization, they, uh, WETA, uh, Windsor Essex Theater Association. And that started with a meeting of, you know, just kind of an open call. Anyone who's involved in theater, come and let's talk about how we're going to survive and thrive in a city the size of Windsor, you know, with its challenges and so on. How are we going to build audience that can sustain all of these companies, not, not sort of divide and conquer, which, which can happen in the arts, right? So that's really taken off as well. And it's, it's really about sharing resources and supporting one another and recognizing that there's room in this community for opera light and there's room for serious theater and there's room for comedy and children's theater. And, you know, all of these things can coexist in the same place and can all find an audience. And the way that you can keep doing theater when you have next to no budget is by sharing the kinds of resources that you do have. So this, this uh, WETA is doing that kind of thing too. And yeah, it's, it's really good to see because it bodes well for the future. Okay, good. That's a very hopeful note to end on. Thank you so much for your time and for your discussion. You're very welcome. It was a pleasure and nice oh. to meet you, Michaela.
Thank you so much for listening to Start Talking. We hope that you keep talking about all of the things that we've spoken about today and all of the art in our local Windsor-Essex community, even long after our podcast episode is over. If you're interested in finding out more about the Art Gallery of Windsor, you can find us on our website at www.agw.ca or you can follow us on social media at AGW401. Have a great day, everyone. Stay safe and be well.